Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? All right. Good to see you guys. I wanted to open up this talk this morning, this sermon, with a discussion about sports because an important sporting event <laughs> took place last night at the Joy FC soccer game where we won. And most of us had a good attitude while doing it. So that's a win. And there might be something else happening this weekend, but I don't know about that. No, I'm just kidding. Go 49ers. Uh, I know some Chiefs fans here, and we, we love you guys. I'm just glad, you know, the Huskies lost the national championship. The Seahawks aren't in it. We can all have something to be happy about. We're, we're starting a brand new series today called Ordinary Extraordinary. And I am very excited about the, the messages that we have an opportunity to discuss and go over as a church over the next couple of weeks. And in this series about ordinary things and, and <clears throat> ordinary habits and ordinary obedience and ordinary acts of service, we're talking about how God can get something extraordinary out of it. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up almost any days of the year feeling extraordinary. Uh, I feel pretty ordinary. I feel pretty uh, uh, locked into my kind of rhythms and habits and things and patterns of life. And yet I've seen God do some extraordinary things in my life. It didn't come out of my extraordinariness, though it came out of my very ordinary acts of obedience and faithfulness and service and repetition and following the pathways and plans of God that he turns into great fruitfulness. And so we're going to explore that today. Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. Guys, if we can get this in our heart and our spirit and begin to apply it in our life, it will change everything. I'm telling you right now that uh, like the, the great evangelist Dwight Moody, he said, many people want to do great things for God, but few are willing to do small ones. Uh, as a church, one of the things I love about you guys and this church that I'm a part of being here with you is that we do the little things all over our city and community, little acts of kindness, little acts of love, little acts of service. Jesus says, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. Our theme verse for this series is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to read it out of the message paraphrase, which I think says it really well. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embrace what God does for you. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. I'm like the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Good. Amen? Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak to us, that God, your word would come and dwell in us richly, Lord, that it would go into our, our hearts and our minds and find good soil to be planted in, and it would grow up and produce good fruit in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this message about uh, ordinary, extraordinary, how you can use our ordinary lives and our day-to-day, -day, sleeping, eating, walking, going to work lives and do something extraordinary with them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I think one of the great lies of, of the enemy, and even maybe one of the lies that we just fall into as human beings is over-spiritualizing things. And what I mean by this is that often when we talk about or we think about the Christian life and the endeavor of going on this journey with Jesus and walking with the Lord and being a Christian, whatever that looks like, is we oftentimes think about the sacred and we think about things that are set apart and the holy and the obscure and the mystical. And we often think that 
to grow spiritually, we have to be in these very spiritual sort of sacred moments when the opposite is actually true. The interesting thing about the Christian faith is that it is fundamentally incarnational. And what that means is that even as God wants to solve Earth's problem of sin and, and our, our mess, he doesn't send a spiritual entity in sort of some abstract sense. He actually puts himself in human flesh in this person that we call Jesus Christ. This is the incarnation. And Jesus doesn't start off as a fully grown man. He doesn't fly out of heaven like an Avenger, you know, like Thor with a hammer and come down and I'm here to save the world. And that would make a good movie. But actually the real story is kind of a lot more basic and and even boring, if you will. I mean, we kind of gussy it up at Christmas, but the story of Christmas is like Mary and Joseph have this baby, right? Mary has this baby in a manger and you know, we all, well, well, there was angels and shepherds and, and wise men. Well, the wise men probably weren't even there. Sorry to burst your bubble. Some of you have to throw the nativity scene out because it's wrong, you know. The wise men were there like two years later, you know. I don't know that it was as exciting as we maybe try to make it out to be. And Jesus grows up as an ordinary kid. He, he's, he's, he's growing up, you know. Later on in history, people tried to add like miracles to Jesus to make it seem more mystical and, and magical and amazing. But Jesus actually had to learn how to walk and he had to learn how to talk and obey his mom and dad. And he's living this very ordinary life. It's not until he's 30 years old that he is baptized by his cousin, John the, the Baptist. That's a fitting name for somebody who does baptizing, right? And uh, uh, I love it. I wish we were back in medieval times where we all had whatever we do for a living would be our last name. You know what I mean? We're like, there's Jake Preacher Man, you know? <laughs> Good to see you guys. It's a lot cooler name than Schmelzer which actually was my medieval job, to schmelt things, which I don't even know, smelt them. I don't even know what that is. So anyways, Bethany, we're changing our last name to Preacherman. Cool. Preacher people, because we want to be... (laughs) All right. Preacher folk. Okay, Jesus, help us. All right. Jesus grows up very ordinary. We often over-spiritualize things. We think, oh, my spiritual growth is going to be connected to these spiritual things I do. Actually, your, your spiritual life and your spiritual growth is going to be connected to how you like, keep your house clean, uh, how you treat your spouse, um, what you do when the 49ers beat the Chiefs today and you're a Chiefs fan. Like, how do you react in the ordinary moments? Or, God forbid, the Chiefs win and us Niner fans have to deal with it. How do you react in those moments? That's actually where the hay gets made. You see, the little things turn into these big things. The, the small acts of faithfulness or the small acts of unfaithfulness turn into bigger things. And this is how God gets a hold of our life, is through these ordinary things. And so today we're going to look at the topic of holy habits, how ordinary habits or actions lead to extraordinary transformation. One of the things that we need to be clear about as we start this discussion about holy habits is that God wants you and I as, as his children to be holy. Okay, it says in 1 Peter 1, So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. What's the implication? Y'all been taught better now. Y'all been told. You know what I mean? You're, you're accountable now to the information you've been given. He goes on in verse 15, But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. What does this word holy mean? It means to be different. It means to be set apart. 
okay? So here's one category of thing. Here's, here's ordinary people lost in their sin, lost in darkness. They don't belong to the kingdom of God. They're not God's children. But then when you come to the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the light shines into your life. You now are not unaware of what sin is. You are now not unaware of what that voice inside of you saying, don't do that, do this other thing is. You've been now uh, brought to enlightenment, if you will, but not just that. You've actually been changed in your identity and fundamental character and nature, and now you're one of God's children, and you're meant to look different than the world around you. This is why it's so easy for people who aren't Christians to sort of levy the attack against Christians and go, well, Christians are hypocrites. Well, Christians are, they don't live up to their own standards. And any well-meaning Christian or any Christian who has any basic theology should say, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, actually we're called to be different. In the world, people lord power and authority and stomp on each other and do the rat race. In the church, in God's family, it's not meant to be that way. Come on. In the world, people are giving into whatever base desires and urges that their body wants, whether it's sex or drugs or rock and roll or whatever it is, although I like rock and roll, so come on, we can rock and roll for Jesus. But whatever it is, whatever it is, that's the world. But over here, we're meant to be different. This is what it's meant to be holy, that if you're God's child, you need to begin to look like your father in heaven. And so Peter says, we're called to be different. To be holy is to dwell in this world, but not be of this world. And ultimately, the heart of our Father is that we'd be like Him. There's another scripture that talks about being formed until Christ is fully formed in you, that God is developing our character, developing our nature, even changing our desires so that we can be like God, even at the inmost place. And so we're talking today about how God creates and, and, and gets holiness out of our life. But let's start with this question. Do holy people create holy habits or do holy habits create holy people? This is how God makes us holy. Not by miracles and not in moments. I once heard a a preacher who was later uh, shown to be a heretic and a charlatan and, you know, doing all kinds of bizarre and crazy things. But I watched this guy and in a message he said, I prophesy that today God's going to, he's going to give you 15 years of character in a miracle. And I thought, what an idiot. (laughs) Not, and I don't mean that to be, I don't mean that in the nice way. I mean it in the mean way. Like that's an idiotic thing because the whole scripture, there's not one instance where God d- d- puts character inside of someone. Character comes out of a long obedience in the same direction. Character comes out of a surrender of the will. Character, if you will, Christian in 2024, comes from taking your flesh to the cross. Taking up your cross daily and following Jesus, saying, Jake, don't do that thing that you want to do because Jesus said not to. My cousin, who's a full-grown man and can beat me up now, but when he was a little kid, he was staying with us, and his name is Nathan, and he's awesome. He's a man of God, and Nathan was just a little crumb cruncher. He's like two or three years old, and he was with us, staying with us a couple of, uh, for a couple of days, and 
you know, I don't know what was going on in his, his family at the time or whatever, but, but my dad, you know, corrected Nathan. And my dad is just, it doesn't matter whose kid it is. He'll be like, don't do that, right? My dad just stands in the place of God to just correct children all over the place, right? How many of you guys, as you get a little older, you just, you take on this mantle, you know? Other people's children running through the mall, all right, stop running, you know? It's like we've lost, guys, we get a little older, we start slowing down a little bit, so we feel this need to take control, you know? Anyways, my dad goes, Nathan, no, or whatever, and, and Nathan, quivering lip, you know, his little baby. So then his mom comes and gets him later, and she's like, hi, how'd it go, honey? How's everything? And he goes, Uncle Steve said no. <laughs> so we always remember that. <laughs> Uncle Steve said no. Well, Uncle Jake's saying no today as well. Uh, God, doesn't, God doesn't shape our character through miracles or in moments. John Mark Comer says it this way, Jesus is in the business of healing souls, Amen. But while the four Gospels have dozens of stories of Jesus instantly healing people's bodies, after which, by the way, he almost always gives them instructions to go and do something as a next step, he doesn't seem to do the same with people's characters. There is not a single instance in which he simply waves his hand to take away an ugly habit or a personality trait in one of his apprentices. The opposite is true. We see their stubborn sinfulness live on for years. Peter keeps petering throughout his life. John keeps Johnning. You know what I mean? They keep doing these things. James keeps Jamesing. Judas doesn't Judas anymore after he Judases that last time. He just Judas once. And then he just, Judas don't know what I'm going to do next. You know, he just, he just moved on. But Jesus didn't zap them. He just keeps teaching and rebuking and loving and giving time to grow and mature. So God doesn't make us holy through miracles or in moments. God makes us holy, sets us apart, develops in us Christ-like character through our ordinary, everyday actions. We're going to put a picture up on the screen. This is a, a picture of what's called a Holloway, okay? And if you want to find more pictures of these or read more about it, you can go to Atlas Obscura, which is a really cool thing. And uh, a Holloway is a, a path that, though it might look like it's engineered or maybe like a, an excavator went through and did this, this is actually created completely by humans and animals and carts and things from uh, time immemorial, just walking these paths, going along these paths so often and so long that eventually they wear down into the soft earth and it forms this incredible pathway. I believe this one's in France, but they're all over France. They're in Germany. They're in, in, the, in the United Kingdom. And you can see lots of pictures of these Holloways. From the Atlas Obscura article, it says, appearing like trenches dragged into the earth, Holloways are centuries-old paths worn down by the traffic of time. They exemplify human-made infrastructure still serving its original purpose. Though many who walk the hallways don't realize they're retracing ancient steps. The oldest hallways date back to the early Iron Age. None is younger than 300 years old. So the very youngest one is at least 300 years old. Over the course of centuries, the passage of cartwheels, hooves, and feet wore away at the floor of these roads, grooving ruts into the exposed stone. I want you to get this picture that we have on the screen. Just get it in your heart, get it in your mind. Like, I want you to be able to see this tomorrow. If somebody said, remember the Holloway, like, think about this. Because the Holloway is a perfect picture of what it means to walk the way with Jesus Christ. It's not our discipline. It's not our fervor. It's not how much we want to be a Christian on a Monday morning or a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. It's not those things. It is our consistent walk of small obedience that wears the groove of godliness into our heart. One of the things I love about the Christian faith is that you can get the result 
of obedience, even if your heart doesn't really long for that result. In other words, when you actually read your Bible, even though you don't want to, you still get the benefit. When you come to church, even though you don't want to, you still get the benefit. When you pray and you seek heaven and you, and you talk to God, you get the benefit, even if your motivation isn't all where it needs to be. Isn't that a cool thing? The out of discipline, you begin to be reshaped and this Holloway forms in your life and it's powerful. And what ultimately happens is that which we do out of discipline eventually becomes a delight. You see, because God isn't just trying to get you to obey and just form these habits and be this very disciplined, one after another, one after one step after another kind of person. He wants you to do that so he can lead you into the great joy that is set before us. Where not only do we do what God wants us to do, but we want what God wants. I was talking to a guy that recently became a Christian and he said, it's so weird because I just don't want the same things I wanted before. And I was like, yeah, that's called sanctification. You're, you're, you're becoming holy. You're becoming set apart. You're, the, the taste, your appetites are beginning to shift. But what's incredible about habits and disciplines is that we can actually begin to engage this process even before the desire is even formed. So today let's look at a handful of holy habits. Number one, found in fellowship. And all of these five habits that I'm going to share with you today, these are things that, again, you can do as an act of discipline that you can commit yourself to, and they're going to, they're going to bear fruit in our lives, and they're going to wear down this hallway if we'll continue to walk in these paths. Found in fellowship. Do you know that church attendance, coming to church on a Sunday like you're doing today, give yourself a pat on the back. I, I'm too heavy, I'm too fat to pat myself all the way on the back, so I can sort of tap my shoulder. I got T-Rex arms, you know, so... I've never had a pat on the back for myself. I just had a pat on the shoulder, but I take it as a pat on the back. Church attendance and participation are transformational. Uh, I say this a lot, and I think maybe some people think I'm just biased because I'm the pastor of the church and I want people to come to church, which is true. I am biased and I do want you to come to church. It makes me feel better if there's more people here than less, you know, just frankly. But, um, but actually, Christian to Christian, disciple to disciple, this is transformational. This is a Holloway forming habit. Like if you just build your life, we go to church on Sunday, <clears throat> you do so many things. Like you send a signal to that part of you that is at war with the work of God in your life that actually you will die at least once a week and I will do that which is right above that which is convenient, easy, or comfortable. Um, you, you also, like beyond what happens in your own life, you, you embrace the reality that we are family not in some just abstract sense, but actually we are the family of God. And even right now, there are Christians all over the world worshiping together, and that's our family. People of different races and colors and, and, and socioeconomic status. And even in this room, somebody in here voted for the other party that you didn't vote for, you don't like, and vice versa. And somebody's grew up on the different side of the railroad tracks. You know, we have people in here that are in law enforcement. We have people in here that are keeping those law enforcement in jobs. <laughs> just make sure you sit in your appropriate sections. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and if you're nervous, you know, just build a hallway. Okay, so why are we here together? Why are, why are cops and robbers together? Why are Democrats and Republicans together? Why are we here together? We're here because we're family, because we're brought together by the blood of Jesus. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which means what? Set apart, different, different group. You're a part of something else. 
You're part of this new one. This is why I don't like uh, identity politics and, and uh, th- these things where we, where we say, oh, my, my race or my socioeconomic status or my sexual preference or my gender or whatever, or all these kind of things supersede my identity in Christ. That has to bow before the throne of Jesus Christ and die. Uh, that's why we don't play with this. We're not like, oh, well, you know, let's figure out how we can uh, do all these kinds of things and, and become uh, um, a friend of the world and all of these false values that they have. No, like all the values should serve the throne of Jesus Christ. And we're found in fellowship. My identity as a Sicilian American <laughs> does not supersede my identity as a Christian. My identity as a white guy doesn't supersede my identity as a son of the, the king. Come on, that's part of this family. And so he's called the people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's impossible to practice or engage with, walk out the Christian faith in isolation. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, you can't be married alone, you can't be a Christian alone. Because, yeah, you can have prayer and you can talk to God by yourself, but when you talk to God, he's going to tell you to go talk to somebody else. Yeah. And he's going to tell you to be nice when you do it, right? He's going to tell you to talk, tell the truth. God's going to tell you to go serve someone and lay your life down for them to exemplify his love. So how do you do that all by yourself? That's why I don't like in our day and age, one of the little cute little things that's creeping into the church, and it's always, you know, more so for more mature Christians, is that they can have this sort of new monasticism, this new asceticism of like, well, I just sort of go to the top of the mountain and I live in my my incredibly like wealthy set apart life and I just pursue Jesus and I do it in sort of this academic dis- disassociated way and I just find that like the real Jesus takes me to the mountaintop and then sends me back down and people are sacrificing to a false god and you got to throw down and actually get your hands dirty. Come on, like you got to get into culture and speak truth and deal with stuff and have conversations about people's broken lives and you can't just hide in like a holy hill somewhere. You got to come down from the holy hill like Jesus did and actually get like in the mud and the muck, not get like polluted by it, but serve people and help people. Okay, so church, when we come to church on Sunday and we make this part of our of our walk, we're living out this this holy habit and it's transformational. The ecclesia, the word. In Greek, for the church, it means called out, brought out, we're set apart, different, right? But to gather. And so to be saved, to be a Christian, is to be added to the body of Christ, the church, the ecclesia of God. So let me give you this holy habit. When, when it's possible to be found in fellowship, be found there. Like, be committed to God's church. Be committed to be here on Sunday. Be committed to a joy group. Well, I don't really like small groups. Get over it. Because it's transformational. I don't like to exercise, but I got to go exercise because I don't want to die. It's not about the preference. And here's the deal. Your preferences, your desires, the inward thing will change. You'll begin to fall in love, which that thing which you used to abhor, because what happens is you, become, you, you get that Holloway thing. God works in you and all of a sudden you realize, I love my family. I want to be in worship with them. I want to be serving them. I want to be in group. So when, when the doors are open, be here, be found in fellowship be in a joy group, be a part, be found in fellowship. Number two, holy habit, persistent in prayer. I don't know about you, but I love it when Jesus gives us permission to dumb things down. Because I've been to all kinds of prayer classes and I, I'm a pastor's kid, so I grew up in church and I've been to these prayer seminars and they're like, okay, it's simple. There's 37 keys to prayer. <sighs> you know what I mean? 
Well, if you want to have like a really simple prayer life and a really effective one, I think Jesus probably knows a little bit about prayer. And in Luke chapter 11, he says, here's how you pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. Your kingdom come soon. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and don't let us fall into temptation. Amen. And I could do a whole teaching on what those things mean, but like that's the prayer. But then right after that, he talks about, tells a story. He says, this is what prayer is like. Somebody's going to go to a friend's house. They're banging on their door at midnight. And the guy's like, God, ah, get out of here. I don't want to answer the door. Come on, come on. I need, some, I need something. I need something from you. No, get out of here. No, I'm going to keep knocking. I'm going to keep doing this. And he says, eventually the guy gets up and answers the door and helps his friend. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 8, but I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and he'll give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Do you want to know the two words that exemplify effective prayer? Deep magic. No. <laughs> shameless persistence. Shameless persistence. Hey, God. God, 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 God. Father, 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 Jesus in heaven, Father. Please, I need you to heal my daughter. Please, I need you to work on my marriage. Please, help me get over this addiction. Please, God, let the 49ers win. <laughs> Come on. Please, God, give us three Ducks national championships in the next five years in Jesus' name. Shameless persistence is the key to effective prayer. Jesus says, I tell you, keep on asking, you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. So habit is that every day, regardless of how we feel, we get up and we go, Father, may your name be kept holy. God, I just see you in heaven. I, I worship you today. I'm coming to you today and worship. I'm coming to you to surrender to your kingdom. I'm coming to you for forgiveness and to, for you to change me to be a forgiving person. Please help me not to screw up today. Don't let me fall into temptation. Every day we persist in prayer and we persist in asking God for those things that we're asking him for. Pray, for, you know, how many of you would love to see somebody come to Jesus through your witness this year? Be, just begin to pray. God, today I ask that you'd give me somebody to share my faith with. And then, if, and then if the prayer's not answered, then you show up the next day. God, I pray that you'd give me somebody to share my faith with, somebody to share my life with and hospitality. God, I need you to work on me. Whatever it is, persistent in prayer. Holy habit. All right, number three. Built on the word. Built on the word. Daily Bible reading equals daily growth. And look, I understand, you know, reading your Bible every day might seem hard, but it's not as hard as like being hung on a cross. <laughs> it's not as hard as like going to Antarctica on a, with sled dogs or something. You can't even get there. It's actually over an ocean. The Arctic you can, but... It's not as hard as climbing Mount Everest. It's not as hard as having a piece of bologna stapled to your face. It's not really that hard. That's my dad's favorite example he used for years. You remember that, Kayla? Yeah, in church. I don't know where he got it. Maybe a weird high school story or something. Daily Bible reading is going to provide daily growth. You know, every day when I read my Bible, I don't want to. How many of you are like, is that okay for me to say that? I've read the Bible a lot. I'm a pastor. If you said, where's that, you know, 
story, I like, well, it's right there. Like, I kind of feel pretty much like I know what happens. It doesn't change every time I read it. It isn't like more exciting. It's the same stuff. But I change every time I read it. Like, I know what's going to happen. It doesn't, it doesn't tantalize my intellect. It doesn't fire off my curiosity. It doesn't entertain me like Netflix does. There aren't any explosions in the Bible that I know of. And nobody walking away from them, you know, without looking back. It's just the same stories. There's some cool stories in there. It's exciting. There's some stuff. But, but no, I don't read the Bible to be entertained or to be intellectually, like, messed over or whatever. I, I just, I read the Bible because it's God's inspired word to me, to us, how to live, how to think. It's transformative and it's a keystone habit. It's one of those things that actually kickstarts and lets loose a whole cascade of amazing things. Lifeway did a research project on this several years ago and they said if you read your Bible four times a week, this is what they found in the study. That feeling lonely drops 30%. This is anybody that reads their Bible four times a week on this study. This is what they found. Anger issues drop 32% which for some of you would be no percentage because you don't have any anger whatsoever, but some of us would, would need some drop. Uh, bitterness in relationships drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. And discipling others jumps 230%. All of these things, they're just sort of circling something. You're going to feel better and act more like God when you read your Bible. You're going to like say no to certain things that are destructive and yes to things that are healthy when you engage with God's word. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. God's going to light up your life when you get into the word every day. We have a Bible reading plan that we're doing together as a church. It's inside the U version. I think we have some uh, cards or something, right, with the QR code that you can get onto this. What, what I'm asking and encouraging everybody to do is that don't, don't feel bad if you miss a day or don't feel bad if you, you haven't started yet this year. Just go find the day that we're on together and start that day. And if you miss some days, just skip those days and start where we are. But for those of us that are reading this Bible reading plan, anybody in here enjoying that and feel like you're growing and God's doing something in your life? It's really, really cool. So this is something we're doing together as a church. Church isn't what we just go to on Sunday. Church is what we do all week, right? It's how we're living together. Built on the word is a holy habit. All right, number four, captivated in worship. Everybody okay? You good? Okay. Captivated in worship. This is something that I think is, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it's so important and so valuable that we would catch a vision of the beauty and the worth and value of God that would permeate everything in us and our response in life would be one of gratitude and thanksgiving and worship to God. So that when we see a beautiful sunset, we don't just go, oh, that's, that's nice. I'm glad it's not raining. But we would go, oh my God, he, he made this. Like this is amazing. Like what a joy it is to live on this planet and be able to breathe this oxygen and see this vista. Like God, I give you glory for this. I worship you. Our life of worship is not just about Sunday when we sing together. Like we should come in here and sing so loud on Sundays that you can't hear. We have to get bigger speakers. Until that happens, I'm not satisfied because Sunday should be the culminating event. Like on Sunday morning when the church comes together, we, we come into this like 
alignment. Imagine here's the circle of the church sort of throughout the week and the circle of heaven. And, and, and at church, those two things sort of begin to overlap and align. And there should just be a straight pipeline of worship on earth as it is in heaven. Like the church of Christ is just lifting our voice and we're dancing and there's joy and the supernatural and the presence of God. But then as we go out throughout all, all the week, it's not just about times of singing and listening to worship music. It's this attitude of awe and wonder of God that I'm captivated by worship. I'm captivated by, by him, by his beauty. Because if you're captivated by the beauty of God, you're free to ignore the other things that would tempt you and pull you away and all those kinds of things. All right, number five, committed to forgive. Matthew 6, 15, the words of Jesus. Get ready for this, a little harsh. He says, if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. For, for a Christian, forgiveness isn't optional. Forgiveness needs to be habitual. It needs to be our way of life, our response. Why? Well, to be a Christian is to participate in a new economy of relationships. Forgiveness isn't optional for Christians, but rather essential, not only because Christ commands it, which he does clearly, but because it reshapes and restores our heart to be more like God. See, it's interesting. If you think about, if you don't forgive other people, Scripture says God's not going to forgive you if you don't forgive others. Because the end goal that God has is not just that you would be an obedient robot, but that you'd be a son or a daughter. You'd want what he wants. And God wanted to forgive you in your sins. God wanted to restore you to relationship. And so that wanting inside of us that he's ultimately after we have to get there from where we are, which is why the, the discipline or the holy habit, the hallway of forgiveness is so important. Now, when I talk about forgiveness, some people come to me and they'll say, well, you know, I was abused. What about boundaries? Or if somebody's still actively doing that? No, no, no. There's still wisdom. There are boundaries in life. There's walking in wisdom. But, but inside of us, we don't put people in a prison that we never let them out of. There's a wonderful book called The Freedom Factor, and he describes going through an exercise where if you're dealing with unforgiveness, that you, you imagine anybody in your life that you have bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness towards, whether they deserve it or not, and you imagine them being in a prison uh, cell underground, and then every morning you go down and you, you, you in your mind, you, you put a key in the lock, you turn it, you open the door, and you say, hey, come on out of here, and you take them up out of the prison, and when they're out in the sunlight, you give them a hug and say, I release you. Now, one time... I read that and I was like, oh, that's easy. And then I tried it and the Lord put in my heart somebody that I had some unforgiveness towards who deserved it. <laughs> and I realized like, I can't even, I can't hug them in my mind. I can't put my arms around them and say, I bless you, I release you, you're free to go. I can't, I can't, I don't want to go and let them out of that jail so they don't deserve it. They deserve to be there. And I realized like, Lord, you got to get a hold of my heart. So I prayed, okay, Lord, today, can I do it today? Nope. Okay, tomorrow. And then eventually I was like, okay, and I did it. And, it, and it, it's a release, freedom. Ephesians 4, 32 says, Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So what's our action step on this? We need to commit ourselves to forgive, to release, and to restore. To be slow to anger, quick to forgive. Don't hold a grudge. Make a commitment. I will be a forgiving person as Christ has forgiven me. This is a holy habit. It's going to transform your life. It's going to make a haul away. OK? 
okay? Now, as we get ready to end today, I want to make a point that we talk about habits and it can seem like we're earning our way to God or we're, 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 through our great efforts, we're making ourselves holy. But this is not what's taking place. God is doing it through these steps. He's walking with us and he's leading us and, and pulling us along. And so it's important to know that habits are something that we practice, not a destination or a point, a, a point of arrival. Philippians 4.9 says, Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, and then the God of peace will be with you. Think about Olympic athletes. They, they do all this repetition. They, they go through, with it, whether it's hurdling or rowing or whatever it is, racing. They're doing all of these things over and over again, leading to extraordinary results. But there's so much under the surface that you never see. You see Michael Phelps swimming in the pool not realizing, well, he spent four to six hours in the pool every day for years and years and years and years and years. And this is where we as Christians, we need to love the process and embrace it and go, God, you're making me holy, but I'm not going to look holy tomorrow. You know, you're, you're making me holy, but it's, it's a journey and I'm walking in this practice. I was thinking about the example of a forest. And there's a lot of examples like this in life, but I think this is a good one that describes holiness, a good picture as we get ready to close today. When you see one tree, you wouldn't say that's a forest. When you see two trees, would you say it's a forest? Three trees, four trees, six trees, ten trees, is that a forest? We were talking about this because we have a little bit of a, some trees behind our house and Bethany said, I would call it a grove. I was like, that's a good word. But when you see a forest, you go, that's a forest. At what point and how many trees does it take to make a forest? I don't know. At what point and how many acts of holiness and days of faithfulness and obedience are you a holy person? I don't know, but when you see it, you know it. When you see it, you go, man, this person is like walking like God. They, they forgive when they should hold a grudge. They touch heaven when they should just get flustered by the things of this earth. Like, what's going on? Well, they're, they're walking along with Jesus. They're practicing this and he's transforming them. Renzo Gracie He's an MMA coach from Brazil, and I'll finish with this quote. He said, a black belt is just a white belt who didn't quit. Amen. Jesus, I pray that this morning you would speak your truth and word into our hearts. Let it be planted as good seed and good soil and grow forth and produce fruit. Lord, we desire to be set apart, to walk with you, to look like you, to be for Christ to be formed in us. So Lord, I pray that we would be, Lord, a people that are walking with you in holy habits, that we would choose these holy habits and others, Lord, that form in us even that picture of the Holloway, that there's this well-worn pathway that, God, we can walk along with you as you lead and guide us in Jesus' name. If you would keep your head bowed and your eyes closed this morning, I want to give an opportunity for anybody here today that is not a follower of Jesus. God wants to make your life holy. He wants to set you apart. He sent his son Jesus Christ to live a perfectly holy life, and offer himself as a perfect sacrifice on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago for your sins and my sins. And he invites us to follow him. He invites us to receive him as Lord and Savior. Now, I want to be clear that when we pray a prayer, when I give you this invitation, this isn't some magic trick. It's not some cute formulaic words that you speak. What you're being asked to do, and I believe what the Holy Spirit is potentially tapping on your heart to do, is to give over the Lordship 
of your life and say, I will follow Jesus. I will choose him as sovereign. I will give up whatever my identity is, what the thing that I've previously associated myself with, and I'm going to identify with Jesus Christ. I will give him my life. I'll give him my heart and I'll ask him to forgive my sins. And I'll receive his grace to be his follower. That you would follow him into the waters of baptism as he commands. That you would follow him into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you would become not just a watcher of Christians, but a participant. You would be part of God's family and part of God's kingdom. And so if if that's you today and you say, I need to give my life to Jesus, Pastor Jake, just lift up your hand so I can see. Thank you. Awesome. 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 Anybody else? Come on. Lots of people already responding today. Anybody else? Awesome. Awesome. All right. We're going to pray this prayer together. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving your life for me at the cross. I receive your forgiveness. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I give you my life today. In Jesus' name. Amen.